Well, let us run then to the strong and kind Jesus. Let's turn back to John's Gospel. And we left off in chapter 6 of this amazing book, page 891, if you've got one of the church Bibles. We followed Jesus' miraculous healing of 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children. We followed him walking in divine, terrifying power across the sea to deliver his disciples afraid in the boat. And then we pick up the story in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there'd only been one boat and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Well, keep those words open, and let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we believe that through these smudges of ink on the page, we meet your living words, our life and hope and peace. So, Feed us, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, there are many, many things we think we care about, but I'm willing to bet that hardly any actually come close to food. Food, glorious food. Maybe it's one of those things we don't even know matters so much to us, and yet we crave it. Most of us, thank God, have never seen the awful, awful things a man will do when that hungry ache inside him reaches sheer desperation. And yet we see glimpses of it, don't we? 
It is the very first question the kids will ask when they get home, what's for supper? We get a glimpse of it in the thought that we burn into our minds when we're climbing some cold, wet Scottish hill and our legs are screaming and our heels are bleeding and we're desperate to give up. And we say, if I just keep going, there is a warm, freshly baked loaf of bread and a hearty stew waiting for me on the table. We get a glimpse of it when we see our usually sweet and gentle family turn hangry. Our bodies are built to crave food. We care. We care about what we put into our bodies as much as any generation has ever cared. It puts cheer into our hearts. It sustains our strength. And without it, we die. And so food we get, which is why this morning Jesus is asking us such a pointed visceral question. Am I, Jesus Christ, the very food you live to feed on and be sustained by? Because I am the only bread for starving souls. So what food are you seeking and where are you seeking it? I wonder if you woke up this morning saying, Father, feed me Jesus today or I die. It was not a good Saturday at the Hunt Taylor household. Much of it my fault, I've got to admit. And so I woke up with that prayer this morning. If you didn't, then perhaps his words here haven't really sunk in yet. And if you did, then what Jesus offers here is the most beautiful promise you could imagine. It's like coming home aching and hungry and tired to a table piled high with everything that puts comfort and joy into your heart. We began this wonderful chapter the other week looking at Jesus' miraculous care for lost human beings. They were wandering in the wilderness, hungry and empty, like the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus fed them with bread from heaven. And then when they tried to make him king, he mysteriously withdrew up the mountain and crossed over the water, catching up with his storm-tossed disciples in the boat to deliver them safely into the land they were heading towards. And today, that crowd of 5,000 men and who knows who else finally track him down on the other side of the sea And the rest of chapter 6 is one long discourse, which takes place, verse 59 tells us, in the synagogue of a town called Capernaum, as Jesus explains to them what they should have seen in his feeding miracle. He is the life-giving bread of heaven. The flow of this chapter is all driven by their questions, a series of seven things that the crowd and the disciples throw at Jesus, which helps us break the discourse up, and which Jesus generally answers by not answering, by exposing the thing that really matters behind the question. And three things he'll show us in this first section, satisfied stomachs, starving souls, 
and a sent son. Their first question is prompted by the satisfied stomachs. Questions two and three expose their starving souls and the only thing that can fill them. And with question four this morning, Jesus invites them to the sent son to come and eat. First then, in verses 22 to 27, there is a very direct truth. Our striving never ends with a satisfied stomach. Because whether we know it or not, it is not just the body which can starve. Now, the run-up to their opening question in verse 25 is a frenetic search for Jesus all over Galilee. And you can understand it, can't you? Because his behavior must have seemed incredibly odd and confusing. He's just performed the most incredible sign. Everyone recognizes that it's significant. They want to make him a new Moses, a new Messiah King. For him to be everything they long for a king to be to lead them and protect them and provide for them, put food into their children's mouths. And yet he vanishes. He won't allow it. On the one hand, he's just shown that he is willing and able to wonderfully provide. But at the same time, it seems he won't have anything to do with them, at least on their terms. And so all the language is of Frantic seeing and seeking and searching. They are working very, very hard. They get boats involved. It's almost desperate, this search. And at last, verse 25, they find him. And so you can imagine, can't you, the question behind the question. Verse 25, Rabbi, why would you just leave us like that? Why would you leave us? And his answer is that they are working for the wrong thing. Frantically seeking me, verse 26, but not because you care about the one that sign pointed to. All you truly saw was the sign itself. Food for your bellies that just dropped out of heaven. The sign pointed to a divine deliverer, the loving covenant God of the Exodus who can eternally provide for his people. And they saw it, but they missed it, didn't they? It's a theme we've seen already so many times in this book. They are working very, very hard, but all out of a longing for the blessings, not the bridegroom, for the material, not the eternal. So I wonder where our eyes are fixed this morning. Verse 27, here is Jesus' big challenge. Do not work for the food that perishes. Work for the food that lasts to eternal life. Food that you can only find as a gift of the Son of Man. Do not waste your life striving frantically for things that will rot in your fridge or turn to ashes in your mouth or be thrown into the tip by your children the day they have to clear out all those piles of treasured trash you left behind. Do we need to work for our food? Yes. Yes, it matters. We're made that way. 
It's necessary, it's godly to look after our families and to enjoy the good things of this world. But do not make the mistake of thinking that if only you spend today working for that one last thing, you'll finally be happy because it will be gone tomorrow. Now, I speak to you as someone whose favorite hobby is longing for a thing. I will research the thing for night after night, slowly persuading my wife that we need a thing. And then two and a half months before Christmas, I secretly go and buy a version of the thing that was twice as much as said wife was expecting. And then there's a cross wife involved who will make you wait for the thing until Christmas morning. And the longing for the thing is all part of the satisfaction, isn't it? At last, you get to unwrap the thing. And for that morning, you are so thrilled with your thing. (laughs) Until the best friend comes around for Christmas dinner, proudly holding a thing (laughs) 2.0. Shinier, heavier, more solid. And suddenly, the thing that made you so happy feels cheap in your hands and you need another thing. You worked and you worked for it and you wrapped your heart around it, but the striving never ends when you have it. Well, all of us are working really, really hard, aren't we? We are running life hard, but what for? Wake up the kids. Duolingo practice, piano practice, viola practice, breakfast, clean. Scream and shout them out the door. Clean some more, study, type, count, scroll, buy, cook, clean again and again and again, homework, rinse, repeat. And a lot of that is necessary. Lots of it is good. But almost all of it is perishing forgotten even before we are. And is that what my kids will see me really caring about? All of that. Is that the stuff they think truly makes me happy? Now, Jesus doesn't say that all of that earthly work is pointless, far from it. But what he does say is something that until recently was absolutely uncontroversial Christian truth. Eternal realities just matter far, far more. Point that out, and as I learned pretty hard during COVID, even Christians will hate you for it, but there's no getting around it. I think they'll hate you because we are all working so, so hard for this, to preserve this, feed our bodies. But human souls need food just as much as human bodies. And if they don't get it, they die. We see it, don't we? We see people go through this life dragging a dying soul along behind them. And yet, how much thought do we give to feeding it? We spend hours preparing our physical meals, obsessing over its value, 
investing our hope in what we put in our mouths. Maybe if I just cut this out or add in more of that, I'll feel better, be better, look better, live longer. How many of us spend a fraction of that time thinking about the food that would keep our souls alive? How many of us husbands thought a moment this week about putting eternal food on the table for our wives and our kids? Where would we even look for it? Well, verse 27, food like that is something we can only get as a gift from the Son of Man. And unlike everything we are working for, the food he gives really does last forever. Think of the manna in the wilderness that Jesus pictured last time with the miracle. Keep it for one day too long, and it would stink and rot and wriggle with worms, like everything else in our lives. So whatever Jesus is offering, it's something better even than those frosties falling down from heaven. And if we want to fill the ache that doesn't go away, even with a satisfied stomach, we need to go to him. Verses 28 to 33, only God can sustain a starving soul. You cannot buy food for an eternal soul in any supermarket on earth. It has to come from heaven. Look at the last words of verse 27. Only the Son of Man can give eternal food. Only the one with ultimate authority over human souls. Because he is the one on whom God the Father has set his seal. Think of the royal warrant that's been in the news a lot, hasn't it? Right now, there are hundreds and hundreds of traders who seal their royal warrant passed away with the queen, and they have an anxious wait ahead, hoping against hope that it will be renewed by the new king. Because that seal, that royal warrant, is an incredibly powerful mark of confidence. We, Weetabix, are the official purveyors of breakfast cereals to Her Majesty the Queen. Who wouldn't want that in their cupboard? I, Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, am the sole person in all creation authorized to feed and sustain immortal souls. And he's been showing us that seal again and again through these signs, these works of God the Father that he's been doing through his Son. I've come, he's saying, to give you more than a picnic on fish fingers and bread rolls. I'm the one who brings what only heaven can bring. And so in verse 28, they're asking the right question. If we're working away for the wrong thing, chasing the wrong things, then what is the work God requires from us? What must we do to feed our souls? But they've missed that key word. This food that lasts is something I will give you. And how do you work for what can only be given? And so this one, Jesus answers very directly because 
Eternity hangs on our understanding. This is the work God wants from you. Believe in the one he sent. Believe that I am the son sent from heaven to reconcile you to my father and bring you home and provide for you forever. Now, is that a work? Is that something we do? Well, yes, that's what he calls it. It's very hard. So hard, in fact, that by the end of the chapter, the vast majority have turned away from him. And Jesus tells us that we can only ever do such a hard work of believing if the Father in his grace draws us to him himself. So even this work we work is really another one of his works. It's not a work in the sense that we're trying to bring something to God and earn forgiveness out of him. Because as Calvin says it, faith brings nothing to God. On the contrary, faith places ourselves before him as poor and empty, that we may be filled with Christ. That's all believing is in this sense, son. Faith is looking to Jesus and crying out, sustain my starving soul, or I will die in my sins. Now, here comes the heartbreak, because that is the one thing these starving souls were not ready to trust. They bought into the idea that Jesus might be some kind of Moses-like miracle worker, but he is claiming something far, far more than that, which is why they ask what looks to us like such an utterly bonkers question. They've been hunting this man by foot and by boat all over Galilee because they've just witnessed a miraculous sign. It's the thing that's brought them. And verse 30, they ask what sign he can do so that they can believe. It seems so odd, doesn't it? But they're not completely stupid. The point is that they saw nothing more than a Moses-type miracle, manna in the wilderness. They saw the sign all right, just not the one it was all about, not the one it pointed to. It wasn't Moses who gave that manna to Israel all those centuries before. It was God the Father. And now God the Father is working right before their eyes through his Son, giving true bread from heaven. You see how that works? The Father gave shadowy bread, which filled their tummies, and the Father gives true bread, which will feed their souls. And all along, one was pointing to the other. Thousands of years ago, God fed their fathers in the wilderness, and he taught them that they really could trust him. It really did fill their stomachs. It was wonderful, true bread, but only ever really a shadow of a much more solid provision. It was feeding them promises of Christ. The bread was a sign, bread of promise. One day, one day ago in the wilderness, God fed them bread from heaven, more bread of promise. Do you see how Jesus says it was you who got the manna in verse 32? Not their fathers, them as a people. They're being compared, aren't they? Very 
explicitly to that wilderness generation. And that is not a good thing, by the way. Even their own words in verse 31 come from Psalm 78, all about the unbelieving generation who God lovingly fed. And maybe in quoting it, they don't see the irony. But here they are, like their fathers, banging on about Moses when God himself has come to them. Here they are begging for signs when they have the very bread those signs were always pointing to, the bread of fulfillment, and they won't take it and eat it. Because this true bread isn't another thing. It isn't an it. Look at verse 33. The true bread for human souls is a he. It's not simply that Jesus gives bread. He's not some cosmic, impersonal food bank. He is the bread. He is the very one we need to feed on. God gives his own son, who literally comes down from heaven to give life to the world by spending his life for us. In Jesus, we have life from above, divine life, truly held out for us to take. And we don't need to climb up to heaven to go looking for it, to feverishly work and search and hope for it. He has come down here to offer himself to us because only God can sustain a starving soul. And so lastly, verses 34 to 35, will we feed on the son he sent? They seem so close, don't they? William Temple, the once Archbishop of Canterbury, calls verse 34 the universal cry of the Christian heart. Sir, give us this bread always. Bread that gives life. Who wouldn't want that? but we can all get as far as that, says Temple. The trouble begins when they're told what this bread is. We love to make religion abstract and impersonal, maybe because abstract, impersonal religion doesn't cost us anything. We can make it into whatever we want it to be. And so for centuries, until the Reformation, theologians started talking about things like grace as if it were some abstract, external substance we could just infuse into ourselves. But the gospel has nothing to do with receiving grace in the abstract, because there's no such thing. The gospel is about receiving a person who is gracious. So you can almost hear the loving frustration in verse 35, can't you? I am the bread of life, says the Lord Jesus. Don't you see now? It's about coming to me, believing in me. And we almost want to ask Jesus, why do you bother sticking with this bread metaphor? It's just confusing everyone. And you have no idea what havoc it's going to wreak when they all start arguing about communion. Why not just say, I'm the one who gives you life. But when you think about it for a moment, the answer is obvious. 
what Jesus is saying is so much more powerful than that. To come to Jesus and eat this bread means so much more than just mentally assenting to a bunch of Christian truths. Jesus is saying, I personally am the one your soul is starving for. The one you must feed on like daily bread if you are ever to live. Bread is the thing we depend on, the thing we love. Often you hear Christians talk about soul food, and there's an appeal to that kind of language. The famous Jesus-shaped hole in our hearts, the restlessness we have until we find our rest in him. But what does it mean to find that, to feed on him? I can sometimes find that language quite nebulous and vague. Well, Calvin, again, was hugely helpful to me on this. He writes this, our souls do not live by an intrinsic power. There's no life in ourselves. They borrow life from Christ, the one with life in himself. And if Jesus himself is the only food for a human soul, then we feed them through all which nourishes and promotes faith in him. In other words, we feed our souls through everything that helps us hold on to Jesus and his gospel. Hearing him speak when we come together, responding to him in prayer, maybe above all, feeding at his table like we will next week. Because all of those are the means God has given us to meet and experience and depend on him the real person, the whole Christ. Think what a visceral picture this eating metaphor is. It's really bodily, isn't it? Here's Calvin again. Faith does not simply look at Christ from a distance, but embraces him, that he might become ours and may dwell in us. Just like food is incorporated into our bodies and united to us. That's why we come to church, isn't it? It's not to say our prayers and listen to a talk and take communion and teach the kids, but to feast on the one who is our life and food and joy, our only hope in life and death. And he's not saying that once we've fed once, we'll never again feel spiritually dry He's not saying we'll never again feel pangs of guilt when we wander. But he is saying very clearly that Jesus is the one who meets all of those needs. Notice it's strange bread. It's bread that cures thirst as well as hunger. Every need. He's saying that once we taste this bread... Once we come to this Jesus, we will never again have a real emptiness at the heart of our life. It's not simply that we'll feel full. It's that he's actually made us full. He's done all that needed to be done so that we could be forgiven. The life he lived for us and the death he died for us 
is enough to keep us going forever. There is an eternal sufficiency in the Jesus given to us. And so we continue to feed on the same bread, depend on the same Jesus. He will always be there offering himself to us and he will always be enough. So let me ask the question once again. Is this Jesus the very food your life is lived by? Or are we like the ones he spoke to that day who beg for bread from heaven and yet don't eat when they have that bread right before them? Will we starve our souls in the face of plenty? I discovered recently that the kids watch everything you put in your mouth. If I eat weird stuff, they are all over it. For a few weeks, out of curiosity, I used an app to track what I was eating. It gave all sorts of interesting data. And within two meals, they were obsessed. Daddy, are you on a diet? They notice everything. There's no pulling the wool over their eyes. So what will they see me feeding on? They'll know. Do I live to be here feeding on just the same meal I meant to be serving each of you? Or is it something else? I wonder how many of us thought about this meal at all before we came to church this morning. I mean, I'm a pastor, and if it convicts me, I'm probably not the only one. I spend all week preparing to preach in church, working, working, working. But I have to confess, I am not good at preparing to feed in church. Did we even read the passage over breakfast? Sing a hymn. Did we pray that God would open our mouths and awaken our consciences and pour the life of his son into our cooling hearts? Did we cry out this morning that the Father would give us Jesus today so that all this coming week our faith in him would be nourished and we would be comforted by him and strengthened in him and rejoicing with friends over the wonderful feast we enjoyed with him because Christ came all the way down to us just to give us himself. Wonderful, glorious, life-giving food right here. Not one blowout meal that leaves us hungry as ever before, but food that can feed our souls by his grace forever and ever. So come and take and eat for the first time or the thousandth time. And welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what love that you would give your own Son to be our very bread. And we don't need to search for him. We don't need to work for him. Only take him and live manner to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. 
And so we pray, would you reorder our whole lives around this true bread from heaven, crucified and risen and eternally enough. Teach us, Lord, every day to depend on him, to sustain our souls, to live by his grace, just as we live by the food we eat. And as we feast on him in your kindness, would you fill us with joy and trust in the God who forgives and lovingly provides? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.